Confession time. How many of you like going to Sam's Club or Costco, one of those places, and grabbing the samples? Yeah, I figured there'd be a bunch out there. Especially on weekends if you go, there's a lot of samples, right? When you go through, some of us, maybe, at least our kids, but maybe some of us even think, you know, they put those samples out there so that we can have a meal before going home. Well, that's not really why they're there. I, I hate to burst your bubble, but that's not the reason they put those out. The, the purpose of the samples is to do one specific thing, and what is that? What? To buy it, right? To get you to buy something. Yeah, to buy whatever it is that they gave you a sample. They give you just a tiny little taste of something that's supposed to entice you to want more. To, to want more. And sometimes it works. Especially I remember when our kids were young and if it was something sugary, it worked really well because it was much easier to just put whatever that thing was in the cart than it was to deal with their asking, shall I say, for more of whatever the sample was. Well, this evening, as we come to our passage tonight, I think the passages we look are looking at function somewhat like those food samples, where we're given just a tiny taste, just a small taste of eternity. We, we get to see just a little glimpse of what it will be like, and, and our minds will have a lot of questions. We'll want to know more. But hopefully at the same time, we, we develop a yearning for a fuller experience. We want more than what we've sampled in these verses. These verses give us a promise that causes us to yearn for more. Last week, we wrapped up the end of human history. We, we flashed through the thousand-year period of the Christ here on the earth, what we call the Millennial Kingdom. We, we saw Satan consigned to the lake of fire for all eternity at the end of that time. We saw a brief rebellion that he posed, but then after that, heaven and earth fled from the presence of Christ as he came as the judge. We witnessed all of mankind, the unsaved remnant of mankind, stand before Christ in judgment, and then they too were thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. Human history came to an end, but John's revelation has not come to an end. With the elimination of the present earth and heaven, human history is complete, yet that's not the end. Our, our passage tonight gives us just that briefest of taste of what comes next. What comes after? What we call the eternal state. In the first eight verses of chapter 21, we, we see the arrival of the new heaven and the new earth. Since creation has dissolved before Christ, the, the current creation, a new place has to come about if, if we're to have a, a spatial existence, if we have a place to dwell. It seems like Having a place to dwell, having a spatial existence is part of our humanity. So, so we can anticipate that there will be a place. Well, John finds himself focusing on a couple different things in the, the first eight verses of our chapter. In the first couple of verses, he, he receives his initial vision of the new creation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. 
This, both these verses let off with that familiar, then I saw. As we know that's John getting a, a new glimpse of something in, in this extended vision he's had. New sight has captured his attention. In this case, it begins with the new heaven and new earth. We, we should understand that this is a new act of creation. The, the lake of fire is eternal, it, but it was the only piece of the first creation that, that remains. That's the only aspect that apparently can continue beyond judgment. The lake of fire was created as, as a place to punish sinners for all eternity, so it was created to endure Sin does not corrupt the lake of fire because it's there as punishment for sin. The, the rest of creation apparently is affected by, by sin. It's under the curse of sin, and that means its destruction is necessary. Still, as I said, it seems like God's people need a place to dwell. It, and that requires a new creation to be formed after the great white throne judgment. This new creation apparently is much like the first creation. It's composed of a heaven and an earth. John sees both. The, the only noticeable large-scale difference that John points out is that this new earth no longer has a sea. It's interesting. Oftentimes the, the sea is, is, is pictured as representing chaos in our current creation. The sea is often used as a metaphor for chaos, for that which is out of order. Well, clearly there will be no chaos in the, the new creation. In a creation untainted by sin, everything will be orderly. The sea in our current creation also largely separates people. It's a divider between people groups. Well, in a new creation, that separation won't exist. Immediately after the arrival of the new creation, John's attention is captured there in verse 2 by the new Jerusalem that obviously is a central element on this new creation. He sees this new city uh, on, on the new earth, this city coming down, this holy city, a, a city that's set apart for God. It's holy. It, it descends from heaven to stand on the earth. That, that means that this city was ready-made. It was constructed perfectly in heaven. It was prepared for this moment that it would join the, to the new creation. The, the city is said to have been made ready, significantly, as a bride adorned for her husband. That, that reference to bride, that, that links back to the, 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 the bride of Christ who was made ready for the marriage of the Lamb back in chapter 19. The, the bride of Christ we know is the church. Now this city is called the bride. That, that terminology su suggests that the city is constructed as a place for the bride of the Lamb to dwell. In other words, the church, the, the, the church people, the individuals of the church will live in this city for all eternity. We should remember that Christ himself promises in John 14 on that last night when he was with his disciples, he, he promised that he was leaving his disciples and he was leaving to prepare a place in his father's house for his church, the coming church, a place for them to dwell, a place for us to dwell. He was going to prepare a place for us to dwell. Well, this is that place. John sees now this, this place that he heard Christ promise. He sees this promised place now descending to the new earth, fully prepared. Remember, Christ has been on earth for the last thousand years of human history. Yet the city, this, this dwelling place is ready. It's been fully prepared while we're here on, on, on earth as the church. Christ is preparing this city. All it 
is waiting for is the arrival of the new creation for it to, to join. John's vision is immediately augmented with a commentary that provides the significance of this new creation. The, the significance. Let's, let's pick up in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In verse 3, John hears an initial voice that, that's not God, but it, because it speaks of God. It, it's a voice that, that comes from the throne. Well, we've heard a lot of loud voices coming from the throne in, in, in this revelation, and most of the time we, we assume they're an angel. We don't know for sure. It's never said specifically, but most likely the voices are one of those angels that are closest to the throne, the, the four beasts possibly, that, that are the angelic beings closest around the throne of God. John hears this voice, and, but more significant than the identity of the voice is what the voice says. The voice says God will again dwell directly with his people. Think about it. Not since sin has entered the Garden of Eden has God dwelt directly with mankind. But now he will. His tabernacle. His tabernacle means his dwelling place. It will be among men. Verse 4 begins to give us just a slight foretaste of, of what the environment will be like, but, but it really defies our comprehension. Nothing that has entered our current creation with the original sin of Adam and Eve will exist in the new creation. It, it will be a totally different experience. Death will not exist. Sorrow will not exist. Pain will not exist. All of these things that, that are so prevalent in, in this world, things that, that really constitute such a large portion of our lives, consume vast amounts of our attention, they no longer exist in this new creation. We can't conceive of that. Think about it. Think about our lives. We exercise and focus on our diet so that we can remain healthy and not experience all the degrading effects, the physical effects that, that bring pain and ultimately death. We try to stave that off as much as possible. But such won't exist in new creation. We won't need to exercise and, and diet for that purpose. We'll just be healthy. We may exercise and diet because it gives us joy, but not to stave off pain and death. We worry about saving up funds to, per, to provide for times of, of need in our lives when we cannot work or when sudden expenses come about. Well, such times will not exist. We'll never lack for anything that we need. 
So much of our lives are structured around providing safety nets for the trials of life and, and trying to stave off the hardships of, life, of our lives. That's where we spend so much of our energy. And yet in the new creation, none of these things will even exist. Here for the first time in, in our verses, since Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, God himself speaks directly. God speaks in verse 5 and he says, I am making all things new. All things. Nothing will be as it is today. All is new. All is completely untainted by sin. Apparently John is so overwhelmed by, by this that he temporarily forgets to, to keep writing what he is hearing. If you look at verse 5, the, the he who sits on the throne, that's clearly Christ, but most likely the he that says next is, is a different he. It's probably John's angelic guide that's, that's given him this tour. This angel nudges him and says, hey, don't forget, you're supposed to be writing this stuff down that you're hearing here. You write it down because everything God says is faithful and true. I mentioned that God last spoke in Revelation 1.8. That was at the very outset of, of John's visions, the outset of this revelation. And, and God told John there that he was, or is, the Alpha and the Omega. Well, now that phrase is repeated again, and that reinforces that, that everything between chapter 1, verse 8, and now has been under God's control. He is the beginning and the end. God has controlled everything that has led to this point. This point has been his goal all along. To, to redeem mankind, to, to be able to dwell perfectly among this new creation in a perfect environment with redeemed mankind. All that God has done has been to accomplish that. God has provided everything necessary so that he would bring man to this place. It was unearned by man. Nothing that man did was, was such that it warranted this result. Man couldn't pay for it. There was no cost to mankind. Instead of earning our redemption, God's goal has been that, that we would joyfully accept God, our God, as our God. We'd, we'd receive him as the one who saves us. We would spend eternity praising him. He promises that he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. God has been working towards this end. This overcomer is receiving the same promise that the overcomer received back in chapters 2 and 3 when, when John had the special, special letters to all the churches. Each church was promised to the one who overcomes, there'd be blessing. Here that promise repeats. There's a promise to the overcomer. God says, I will be his God. Well, the first time in history God promises anyone that he would be his God is recorded in a promise to Abraham. The promise that he will be my son, God made that promise first to David. The, the point is that God has been working his plan all the way through from the very beginning of mankind, through Abraham, through David, through Christ, through the events of the tribulation, all to come to this point. His plan has been designed to accomplish this glorious result for all those who are his people. They will have a place where they will dwell with him for all eternity, and he will dwell with them. 
By contrast, verse 8 reminds us those who refused faith in Christ will have no part in this. Their, their lives demonstrated by their character, all these traits we see, determine their destiny. And their destiny was fixed in the previous chapter. Their destiny is the lake of fire. The first eight verses here gives us just a, a small taste of the new heaven and the new earth. The, the remainder of our passage tonight then zooms in on the, the city that's at the center of the new creation, where, where the center of focus lies. In, in the remainder of chapter 21 through the first five verses of chapter 22, we have the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem. The city was announced as arriving in verse 2. But now John is given a guided tour by, by one of the angels that poured out the, the final bowls in the tribulation. One of those seven last angels now takes John, much as he did in, some of the, in a couple of the previous chapters, 17 and 18, and now gives John, or 18, 19, I can't remember where it started, 17 and 18. One of those angels gives John now a guided tour, takes him a tour on the city. Look at verse 9 as we see the structure of the city. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of clear, crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, and its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. He measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of this city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophras, the, the eleventh jankinth, the twelfth amethyst. In the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. In the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. John's tour guide, like I said, is one of those angels. It could be the same one from chapter 17 or 18. might be a different one. Anyways, it's one of the angels that poured out the last bowl, and the angel invites John to come and take a closer look at the city that's, that's the center of focus. So he takes John to a high mountain from, from where he could see the city descending from having to get a better look at it. It's significant that, again, the city is directly called now the, the bride, the wife of the lamb there in verse 9. What was suggested earlier by the linking of, of the bridal terminology, linking the city to the church, is now made more clear. 
This is where the redeemed believers of the church age will dwell. They'll live within the New Jerusalem. The, the city, as John sees, is striking in, in many aspects, but the most striking physical feature is that which is created by the presence of God. The city shines with his glory. That is the first thing to arrest John's attention. Not since chapter 4 have I felt quite so much empathy for John as, as I feel now as, as John tries to describe the indescribable. Words cannot capture the glory of God. And, and, and again, John struggles with simile after simile after simile trying to convey what he sees in, in words that just can't capture what, what he's looking at. Some of the things that he, he gives us are straightforward to describe. The, the city is square. The city has a high wall. There's three gates on, on each side. The gates have an honor guard of angel. And, and these angels are named, or the gates rather, are named for the t- tribes of Israel. Those things are kind of easy to describe. It's not hard to describe that the city rests on 12 massive foundation stones that are named after 12 apostles. Oh yeah, it's also not that hard to describe that the city is huge. It goes beyond our ability to comprehend the, the measurements that John works out, uh, giving the, the base are 1,500 miles long on each edge. And the city, he says, is also 1,500 miles high. It's a little hard to imagine that. It's structured either as a cube or a pyramid. Um, it could be a pyramid with the center point being 1,500 miles high, or it could be a cube, but it's massive beyond comprehension. But John can describe these physical details fairly, fairly well. They, they, they give us some ideas of the, the external appearance of the city, but he, he runs short of words to, to capture the appearance created by the composition, the, the materials, the, the reflection of these materials because of the glory of God. He can't capture that adequately. Sure, we have words in our English Bibles for each of the foundation stones, but, but scholars don't really know what the stones are. If you look at your translations, you may have some variation, and if you look at what the scholars say, they say, yeah, even when we translate some of these, we don't really know what, for sure what that word means. But even then, John is just saying it's kind of like this. Furthermore, what is pure gold that, that looks like transparent glass? No one really knows. I don't know. All we know for sure is that this city surely sparkles and shines with a brilliance that, that's far beyond our imagination's creation. What, however much we imagine of brilliance, it far surpasses that. And we can recognize that this city is perfectly designed to reflect and transmit the glory of God as he dwells within it. It has that purpose, to show God's glory throughout the new creation. So having observed the structure of the city, John looks closer at the interior where where he sees the light of the city. Look at verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and his lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by his light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, in the daytime its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, 
but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 3 told us that, that God is going to dwell among his people. He's going to tabernacle, tabernacle among men. Tabernacle means dwell. But, but when, God look, or not, when John looks at the city, he notices there's no temple. God is not dwelling in a temple. In, in fact, the, the word that John uses is a word that designates the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem, that, that center place where, where God chose in this creation to uniquely manifest his presence. It, it was a place where access was restricted. The, the high priest alone could go into the Holy of Holies, and the high priest could only go in there once a year, and then only after the most careful preparation the high priest then had to mediate access to, to God for the, the rest of the people of God. Well, in the New Jerusalem, the, the Holy of Holies is absent. There, there is no temple. Maybe more specific, specifically, we should say that the entire city now is the Holy of Holies because God is, is dwelling within the entire city that, now. A specific physical temple is replaced by the, the presence of the Lord God Almighty himself. And along with the Lamb. And access is, is no longer restricted. It, it's not limited. The, the reality is that God the Father and God the Son are there, and the inhabitants of the city have direct, unmediated access to them. That is the reality of the future. The reality of the new Jerusalem. In fact, the, the reality of God's immediate presence is so great that there's no requirement for any other illumination throughout the city. The, the glory of God fully illumines the city. The, the presence of the Lamb functions a, as a lamp throughout the city, shining, sun, moon, they're, they're completely unnecessary. They, they could add nothing at all to, to the, the radiance of God's glory. There, there is sufficient light for all who dwell within to, to walk by the, the light of God's glory. Now, now, this was predicted back in Isaiah. Back in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19, the prophet was told that no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor the brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory. It was predicted, but I am confident that our imaginations fall far short of generating a picture of this new reality. We, we cannot conceive of the shining glory of God filling all the space around us. Yet that's what John sees here and tries to describe. John also observes that the nations of the earth will continually bring tribute into the city. They'll, they'll travel by the light of God's glory, which apparently is filling the entire new earth. They'll come and and they bring their choicest treasures, their glory and their honor, their choicest treasures to, to God and the Lamb. Now, I'll admit that I don't know who these nations are. One, one possible suggestion is that they could be saved people outside of Israel in the church um, in the Old Testament time frames, maybe. You know, people like Job and Melchizedek that were clearly people of God, but they weren't people of Israel. Maybe it's them. Uh, another suggestion is that there might have been people born during the millennium who do not follow Satan. Uh, I mentioned that briefly last week, that there might be a judgment of rewards for people in the millennium that, that did not follow Satan in his rebellion. Instead, they, they trust Christ as their king. 
Well, these people, maybe the reward would be transformed to undergo life in the eternal state without ever dying. And that could leave them as the nations of the new earth. I don't know, maybe Christ will clarify these details during the thousand years of the millennium when, when he's asked. At this point, we don't have enough information to know who composes these nations of the earth. What, what we do know is that they exist. We, that, that implies that ethnicities are, are still a reality in the, the new creation. But we also are reminded again that there will be no taint of sin anywhere in the new creation. The gates of the city will never see a single sinner pass through them to enter the city. The only ones who will enter this city of the eternal future are those, we're told, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Remember, John has been given this revelation for the church. This revelation was meant to encourage believers in the church age, you and I, as well as the, the centuries before us and any who come after us in this church age, this revelation has been given to motivate us to become overcomers, to be overcomers, to strive in faith. We, we must never forget that the only way to become an overcomer is through faith in the Lamb. It's only followers of Christ who have their names in the book of life. It's only followers of Christ, followers of the Lamb, who, who will not receive judgment based on their own deeds, as we saw last week in the great white throne judgment. It's only followers of Christ the Lamb who will enter the eternal city. The only ones who are followers of Christ the Lamb are those who place their faith in Him now, during this life, in this old creation. The, the reference to the book of life there in verse 27 is just another prod in this book to, to trust Christ now while the opportunity exists. Once the consummation of history arrives, there, there is no further opportunity to, to repent and accept and, and gain entrance into heaven. Heaven shown John this, this most important point in the city that, that the, the light of God's presence has replaced the temple Showing John that, the angel now continues his tour with a final few highlights. You know, a good tour guide always shows you the highlights of the city, starts with the most important, and then moves onward. Look at verse 1 of chapter 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have any need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Aside from God and the Lamb, the, the river with the water of life and the tree of life on its bank are the most significant highlights in the city. These two things that there are joined together, the river of life and the water of life. Now, before we focus on these, I, I, I do want to point out that John mentions here that there is one throne shared by the Father and the Lamb. Coming from the throne in verse 1, of God and of the Lamb. There's, there's a single throne shared by the Father and the Lamb. 
Christ's sacrificial death, the lamb reminds us of his sacrificial death, that sacrificial death has made him worthy of the honor of sharing the Father's throne for all eternity. Considering the, the river and the tree, essentially, God has recreated the, the Garden of Eden and in, into the state that was before the fall. From the throne of God flows a river, just as there was in the original garden. It's a life-giving stream, and that, that life proceeds directly from God's presence now. The, the stream flows out of the throne and, and then proceeds down the, the center of what would be apparently the main thoroughfare of the city. And on either side of the stream, there's this forest of, of life-giving tree. The, the fruit of this tree, apparently a different fruit for every month, uh, along with the leaves of the tree, it provides health for the nations. There's no longer any curse to hinder mankind's communion with God in any way. The, the original intent for, for mankind to live in a garden setting, to, to serve and worship God, that environment will exist now for all eternity. People will come directly into God's presence. They'll, they'll finally reach the, the goal of, of human existence. In fact, we're told they will have his name on their, their foreheads. That, that points to belonging to God as bearers of his image, uh, of his likeness. They, are, they belong to God, fulfilling their goal. That will be us. Of course, there are several questions that, that this brief scene raises in our minds. For example, will time elements, how will time elements like months be measured when there, there's no longer any night? Our, our time today is really measured by rotation of day and night and, and the movement of, of the sun and the moon. And that won't be possible in, in new creation where there's only light. So will time be measured by something like the bearing of the fruit as the months change? I, I don't know how, how we measure that. But apparently there is time because the fruit's born in each month. Speaking of the fruit, that raises another question. In, in what sense does the tree provide health for the nations in a new creation that doesn't have any aspect of the fall. There, there is no death. There, there is no illness. There, there's only eternal life. How does the, the providing of healing fit into that reality? I don't know. I'm just going to leave it at that. I don't know. Oh, and let's not forget the final phrase that I read this evening. They will reign forever and ever. What does reigning mean when everyone is equal before the Lamb, when the unity among the people of God is perfect. Most likely, implicit within this idea of reigning, there is an element of fulfilling the original mandate, the dominion mandate of ruling over God's creation. We will rule over this new creation as God's representative, but what will that look like? I don't know. All we know for sure is that it will be unlike anything within our experience. Our experience is, is dwelling in a creation that is out of harmony with its creator. This is a creation that's in harmony. Beyond that, I don't know what it will look like. I know it will be different. That, however, is all that John has shown in the highlights of the city. He's given this brief sample. The, the visions that we've looked at the, this evening of the new heaven, new earth, along with this focus on new Jerusalem, it leaves a lot of questions as you think about it. That's for sure. It leaves us wanting more. 
But isn't that what samples are meant to do? Cause us to want more? That's why they're handed out at Sam's Club and Costco to get us to want more so that we'll buy what we just tasted. The reason John gave, or God gave John these visions is for a similar purpose, so that we will yearn for what we have glimpsed. Yet before we, we close our time tonight, let's ask ourselves, what should that yearning look like? What form of sanctified yearning should we have because we've glimpsed this vision of the eternal future? I think the answer to that question will, will parallel the answer that we've arrived at many times as we've considered this extended vision that, that John has received. I think it should cause us to seek for others to join us in celebrating in the presence of God's eternal glory. That should be the result of this yearning. We should seek for others to join with us. We'll be spending all eternity celebrating. We should want others to join in that celebration, to join us celebrating in the presence of God in his eternal glory. Celebrating is the word that comes to my mind, at least when I, I picture myself within this glorious city, walking through this forest, alongside this river, arriving at the throne of my God and, and my Savior, coming there and being filled with awe. It, I can't conceive of anything beyond an awe-filled celebration, a joy-filled celebration, a holy celebration. I'm confident it will be a celebration. Much of what my mind pictures that, that makes this celebration that I can imagine so magnificent is that it won't just be me standing. There will be multitudes upon multitudes of co-celebrants standing alongside me, singing praises to my God and my Savior on their throne, basking in the glory that is pouring forth. Yet the moment I begin to picture this multitude, I, I cannot help but think of faces that I know will be there and faces that I hope will be there. There are people that I earnestly hope will stand next to me, celebrating right alongside me, but I know they need to accept Christ first. There, there are people who currently have not done so. Faces that come to my mind that I would love to have next to me that are not ready at this moment. I want them with me. I want them experiencing the, the wonder that I know will be far beyond my imagination. And I find myself in that wanting, renewing my commitment, my, my desire now to share Christ with them again and again, to, to persevere in my witness and, and in my prayers so that they will be standing next to me when that time comes. How about you? Do you have a similar response to this sample of eternity? Are, are there people that come to your mind, faces that, that you see that that? you know will be standing next to you, but are there faces that you see in your mind that you hope will be standing with you that need to accept Christ in order to make that happen? It's certainly true that this glorious future should encourage our perseverance through the trials of this life. A glimpse of what coming re reminds us that, that what we're living in now is a broken world 
It assures us that God will replace this broken world with a perfect version. That is exciting, that's comforting, that's encouraging. Still, several times, as we hit encouragements to endure in this broken world, we've been reminded that the perfect version, as we've seen over and over this evening, multiple times in this brief glimpse, is only open to those who know the Lamb. We should seek for others to know Him as we know Him so that when we see Him, they will see Him too. We should seek for others to join us celebrating in the presence of God's eternal glory. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing glimpse you've given us tonight. We know that no matter how great our imaginations run with what we've seen in this brief glimpse that John wrote down using the the feeble words of language, the reality will far exceed our imagination. And yet what we imagine is is glorious. It helps us to, to realize again how glorious our God is and how amazing our salvation is, what our Lamb has provided for us. But Father, that vision also spurs us to share our Savior with others so that they will be alongside us when we come into this glorious future. Father, I pray as we leave tonight that we would take every opportunity you grant us this week to share Christ, to urge those who need to know him, who need to place their faith in him, that we would plead that they would come to Jesus while they can. And we know that as we do that, our Savior is magnified. For it's, and we pray now in his name that you would enable us this week.